Let me begin with a word of prayer. Does everyone have a hand up? Okay, good. Heavenly Father, thank you for this privilege, this uh, joy to think about the Bible, to look closely at the biblical texts, to think about the relationship between the church and state. Uh, I pray that you would be with us, uh, bless us, help us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so this is... Uh, the intersect, the relationship between the church and state, or, um, you know, uh, what is, what should be our attitude and perspective on politics has been a topic that has interested me um, all my life. I'm, I am somebody who likes politics and is, follows politics. So this is a, a topic that I've thought about for a long, long time. And let me say at the outset that this is a topic that um, I think good Christians disagree on. And uh, so I think that's totally okay and that's totally fine. I think it's um, nothing uh, essential uh, to the gospel. Um, so what I want you to do is I want you to uh, have a generous perspective so that if you, if you hear what I'm saying and you dislike it, I hope you'll, you'll feel like you can disagree and dissent and it's okay because I think this is one of the topics that Christians have always disagreed on. But I hope to persuade you. Um, and I think the, the, the way to approach it is that part of the reason why there is such a disagreement is that you have so many different models in the Bible for the way Christians relate to the state. Uh, specifically, you have the model of Israel in the Old Testament. And I think the solution is to, is to understand all the different models in a sort of narrative arc. And so this is why I call the class Church and State of Biblical Theology. Has anyone heard of that term, Biblical Theology? It doesn't just mean theology that's really from the Bible. But has anyone heard Biblical Theology? David, you have. What is Biblical Theology? I'm putting you on the spot. Versus some from other ways of doing theology. Um, it's theology that takes the account of the whole arc of the narrative mm-hmm. where you might be any Yes. So biblical theology is looking is 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 doing theology um, and understanding it in light of story, right? So there's a beginning of the story, there's a middle, and then there's an end. There's a sort of a development, a narrative arc. This is to be this is distinguished from systematic theology. Systematic theology is where you look at the whole Bible and you don't necessarily distinguish between uh, the beginning or the end of the story. You just sort of like say, what's the doctrine of God? So uh, you can look at Genesis, you can look at Isaiah, you can look at Revelation, and they're all, they all, like, you can all just sort of blend it into a blender and then draw your doctrine of God. But biblical theology says, okay, there's a, there's a story arc. And I think uh, the story arc paradigm is the most helpful in understanding this question of church and state, right? And being able to organize the different models that we see in the Bible. So I want to begin with presenting a problem. And the problem here, I, I've entitled it, Christ is Lord Overall. This is what we believe. This is the promise of the Bible. And it's a problem because isn't that therefore a mandate for us? Uh, doesn't that therefore um, compel us to actualize and make this true if it is not true, that Christ is Lord, right? So let me read to you two passages um, to sort of highlight this problem. Daniel chapter 2 this is uh, Daniel, um, he's before King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar has this terrifying vision, this dream. 
And so Daniel is explaining the dream to the king. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. So what's this uh, statue? It's this enormous statue, and it's like multi-layered, right, with uh, different uh, uh, precious metals. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand. Um, whenever you see that expression, uh, no human hand in the Old Testament, it basically, it's another way of saying it's uh, divinely wrought, or it, it's not a human invention or human creation, it's from God, right? So as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, and the silver, and the gold, all together were broken into pieces, and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Um, I've cut out sort of Daniel's explanation or interpretation of the of the dream. Do you guys remember what is the interpretation? Like what does the statue represent? Yes. So he says it's all the kingdoms of the world. Um, and then the, the, the different layers uh, represent sort of like the different uh, qualities or different strengths. So he says, you, O Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold. You are the most shining, glorious kingdom that has ever come to be. But there will be various other kingdoms that follow you. And what happens to all the kingdoms of the world according to this vision that God gave Nebuchadnezzar? A stone that God, that no human being has created that is from God, comes, smashes all the kingdoms of the world so that they become dust, like chaff, blows away, and then this stone fills the whole earth. What is this saying? It's a great promise that the kingdom of God, when it comes, will destroy all the kingdoms and will fill the whole earth, right? So, therefore, isn't this a mandate for Christians? Isn't this a manifesto um, that the kingdom of God, we want this kingdom, this stone that no man has cut, has, has, has created, to fill the whole earth. Uh, isn't this a political action uh, plan? Listen to Daniel chapter 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. This uh, son of man is this this sort of like divine figure, and we know from Jesus re- referencing this to himself, this is this is Jesus, right? This is this is this is the Son of God. This is the second person of the Trinity. So, what is given to Jesus? What is given to Christ? And to him was given dominion. And uh, underline or think in your mind that word dominion. What does dominion mean? Uh, very simple, right? It just means rule control, right? Uh, So that's very important. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So uh, what is this telling us? It's telling us that Christ's kingdom is not just a spiritual kingdom where we sing hymns and we uh, adhere to moral laws it's a political, it's a geopolitical, 
It's a, it's a all-encompassing, all aspects of human existence and universal life. It's a, it's a dominion, right? That's the promise of Scripture. That's the mandate of Scripture. So what do we do with these passages? So I put what, so what now? Does the supremacy of Christ compel us to get involved in politics? Right? Because uh, if we are citizens of a nation that does not recognize the supremacy of Christ, should we, do, should we make every effort to make Christ supreme in that nation? Right? Should we uh, seek to enact laws that um, recognize and honor Christ? Second bullet point. Does Old Testament Israel provide a model for contemporary America? So this is where I say that there's a lot of competing visions and a lot of uh, competing... Uh, and here, I only said this at half the class because the second half came later. But let me just say this, that good Christians disagree on this issue, right? And so I'm going to present a, a, a particular view that I've really spent a lot of time thinking about and I hope that it is biblical and I, and I submit it to you. But if you find yourself disagreeing, that's okay. Um, so is America a Christian nation is the question. Should we make America a Christian nation? I remember when I was in high school, there was something called See You at the Pole. Has anyone heard of that? Mm-hmm. So See You at the Pole is the, the... There's some sentiments of it which I like, but there's other sentiments of it which I question, which is this whole idea that we're, we want to make America a Christian nation. Um, and I remember the theme verse of See You at the Pole, Second Chronicles 7.14, which... Um, if you're from the 90s, you'll remember it's a Michael Card song too, right? Um, which I think is a great song. <laughs> uh, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. So I remember see you at the poll. Uh, I was one of the student leaders. And I would say, if we just pray, then there will be prosperity and blessing in the United States. Um, and America will become a Christian nation, right? Um, I have since uh, changed my views on that matter. But uh, let me, so let me present it to you, okay? So here's the answer, I think. The key, third bullet point, is to realize the place of Israel in redemptive history. Or in other words, we have to think in terms of the narrative story arc of the Bible. And the next point I want to make is that there are two, and here's the story arc, right? There are two alternating political paradigms in the Bible, is what we see in the Bible, which is what makes things confusing. Um, we got notice from the, the teacher here that she doesn't like things being moved around, so I'm, I'm trying my best not to move things around. Um, I was going to move this, but I'm not going to move it, <laughs> for fear that I forget. But uh, please, someone remind me to put the, the rocking chair back. It, it belongs right there. Okay, so there are two political paradigms. One is theocracy. So what is theocracy? Can someone give me a, a quick definition of theocracy? Versus like democracy or some other ocracy. God appoints the king, essentially. Or the, there's a... Even, there's there's an even more stark definition. Uh-huh. Yes. So there's theo, which means God. Krasi, or kratos, meaning rule. God is the God is the king, right? Um, there's sort of like a a, 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 a a subsidiary version of that in which God appoints the king, right? But God is king. God is the ruler, right? Um, there are no rivals. If there are rivals, who are they? They are demonic rebels. They're Satan. They're agents of Satan. 
And in a theocracy, what is your obligation to these rebels, to these forces that do not acknowledge the sovereignty of the king? You must crush them. You must push them out. You must defeat them because they are of Satan, right? So here, church and state are fused. There is no distinction. There's uh, no dual authorities. Uh, to, to not acknowledge, I mean, to, to acknowledge the rule of any power other than God is an act of betrayal to the true king. Does that make sense? That's theocracy. It's sort of like a, a monistic, unitary view of church and state. The other model that I will propose that is in the Bible as well, so theocracy we definitely see, we also see dual citizenship. This is very complicated, <laughs> as you can tell, because there's two, right? This is where Christians, uh, Christ followers, live in two realms. They live in the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God is their ultimate allegiance, right? Uh, it commands their, their highest uh, devotion and honor, but it's a spiritual kingdom, Um it commands their, their, their worldview. It commands their moral life. Um, but there is a, a second kingdom, what I would call an earthly kingdom, which is unlike the kingdom of God. It's temporary. It's passing away. It's provisional only for a time. But it is not illegitimate. It's legitimate. So you have these two power centers, which is very, very different than theocracy. Because in a theocracy, a second power center is of the devil. It must be crushed. In a dual citizenship paradigm, these two uh, power centers coexist. And one doesn't have to be crushed. In fact, you live in both. In fact, they overlap to some degree because the kingdom of God is spiritual, invisible, and and then the earthly kingdom is physical, political, political. uh, earthly, right? And Christians are called to be uh, citizens of both, ultimate allegiance to God, but good citizens of the earthly kingdom. Does that paradigm make sense? Okay. Um, so, let's go to the next column, a biblical theology of kingdom in the Bible. So, here's my theory. The Bible alternates between theocracy and dual citizenship, which is what creates all this confusion, I think, But if you see it as a narrative arc, everything comes into crystal clear um, clarity. (laughs) Um, So first, we have Eden. So this is before the fall. This is the world um, when God created it in the garden. Uh, Genesis 1, uh, let me read it for you. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over, so do you see that word dominion, right? Important word. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So you have this vision of God as the supreme ruler. Uh, he's an uncontested ruler. And then he appoints man in his image to, to have dominion, meaning uh, he's sort of like a vice regent. He's sort of like a... Uh, uh, a vassal king, right? Um, there are no rival powers in Eden. Uh, insofar as there is a rival power, Satan, 
he is to be crushed. He is to be defeated. He is to be to, he is to be expelled. Right? Um, not tolerated. Not given legitimate rule in any way. Um, the picture changes during the patriarch period. I would propose that the patriarchs you see dual citizenship. Okay. So let me just give you, there's so many examples, but I didn't want to overwhelm you with passages. So let me just give you one, Genesis 23. What happens is Sarah, at a very old age, dies. So Abraham wants to bury his wife, and he negotiates uh, purchasing a burial plot from these pagan people, the Hittites. So here's what it says. And Abraham rose up from before his dead, this is Sarah, his wife, and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a, bear, for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Now, notice, first of all, that Abraham doesn't wage war. He needs some place to bury his wife. Why not just seize it? Why not just make war? We know that Abraham is capable of making war. He raised an army. He rescued his nephew Lot. Um, so why not engage in war with the Hittites? Why not say, uh, uh, we are the people of God. God is with us. Against any odds, we can win. Instead, he negotiates with the Hittites. And he doesn't destroy them. And then he says something that's very, very important. He says, I'm a sojourner and I'm a foreigner. Sojourner is a word that's sort of like out of use nowadays, which is regrettable. It's a beautiful word. What is a sojourner? Traveler, yes. Very good. But it means something even more than a traveler. So a sojourner is a traveler heading towards a destination. Um, so I think a better definition is pilgrim. A pilgrim is somebody who's traveling, and they're heading towards a specific destination. What destination is Abraham heading towards? Hebrews 11. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Um, we'll get back to those words as well. Strangers, exiles, uh, sojourner, foreigner. I think it's all sort of a word cloud, semantic range, talking about the same thing. What is Abraham sojourning towards? What is he being a pilgrim towards? Yes. The, the, the promise given to him, which is this, this new creation, new earth, which is heaven, which is this, this promise that he'll be in the kingdom of God, right? He's journeying towards it, but in the meantime, while he's living, and he's living the, at the time in Canaan, in Palestine, is Canaan, what does that imply? Is Canaan his home? No, if you're a sojourner, you're not home. You're going home, or you're going to your destination. So what that means is that he's a dual citizen. He's a citizen first of the kingdom of God, which is coming. He's waiting for it. He's longing for it. But in the meantime, he's a stranger. He's a foreigner. right? Like if you were to visit another country, you don't settle down. <laughs> you, 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 you obey the laws, you don't create havoc, but, but you know you're a guest, right? You're a foreigner. You're just passing through. Um, that's, the, that's 
the way God's people were to think of themselves during the patriarch period. Uh, the land is not their home. Uh, uh, there is no kingdom for them in the here and now. So that's dual citizenship. Um, any quick questions on that point so far? No? Okay. Uh, so what I'm doing is I'm uh, incrementally giving you my paradigm. Each incremental byte seems unobjectionable. And then soon you're deep in the rabbit hole. And <laughs> I have you. I have you. Because objection should have been made, but if there isn't, I have you. All right. <laughs> the next uh, epoch, the next sort of paradigm in the Bible we see is Israel, right? Which is um, when the, the people of God enter into Canaan now under uh, Moses, under Joshua. Uh, and in Exodus, God gives his people the mandate of what they are to do once they enter the promised land. This is how they are to relate to non-believers. Notice that Abraham, how does he relate to non-believers? Does he kill them? No, he negotiates with them. Um, he respects their rule, right? So this is what happens in Exodus 23. This is, this is the voice of God speaking. When my angel goes before you and brings to you the, uh, the <laughs> brings to you the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the, and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall listen. Utterly, dis utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. Right? So he says, God says to the people of God, total destruction. No tolerance. N uh, leave no one alive. Right? Uh, I, I talked about this uh, uh it offends modern sensibilities. I don't want to talk about that for now. I just want to talk about the principle of it, which is that um, the whole land is to be cleansed. All evil, all unrighteousness, uh, all rival powers to God is to be eliminated, and it's to be a new land, a holy land for God, right? And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistine, Philistines and from the wilderness of the Euphrates, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hands and you shall drive them out before you. Don't let any, any anyone who is a non-believer cannot live in the promised land. The promised land is for believers. You shall make no covenant with them, no negotiations, no treaties, no tolerance. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me for for if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So this is theocracy, right? Um, uh, there is only one legitimate ruler who is God. Anyone who does not recognize the rule of God is a rebel who must be crushed or pushed out. This applies, by the way, only to Canaan, not to the whole world, right? Only within the promised land. But I just want to emphasize no tolerance of dual power centers, you don't see dual power centers. You only see uh, a unitary monistic power center, which is a rule under God. Any questions here? All right. Let's go deeper into the rabbit hole. Next point. The next period you see is the exile. What happens in the exile? Uh, in many ways, the, the, the experience of Israel was 
pointing back to Eden, right? The, in, in, uh, the promised land, Canaan, was recreating the garden. And just like Adam in the garden, it was a test, test of obedience. Um, but they failed that test. And just like Adam, Adam was expelled east of Eden, so also Israel is expelled east of the promised land, and they go into exile. Uh, and what's interesting is that they go uh, into exile in Babylon. Uh, Babylon, you have to understand, Babylon is the big boogeyman city in the Bible. It's the most evil city. It's the city of iniquity, sexual immorality, idolatry. Um, it's the city, it's the capital city from the people who destroyed Jerusalem, who destroyed the temple, who dashed the babies of Israel on rocks, right? Um, it's, it's an evil city. Now God's people are living in Babylon. Jeremiah writes them a letter, and he says, this is the way I want you to live in this city, this pagan, great pagan city, and I want you to listen to his counsel. Does it sound like Israel, theocracy, or does it begin to sound again like the patriarchal period, dual citizenship? Jeremiah 29. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people from uh, whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts. So this is God. God saying, this is, this is the way I want you to live. The God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, he says, build houses and live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, <laughs> um, take wives and have sons and daughters, Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city. Um, and the word welfare there in the Hebrew is actually a much stronger word than welfare. It's the Hebrew word shalom, which means flourishing, which means prosperity, which means wholeness. So I want you to seek the wholeness of the city, the flourishing of the city. I want the city to, to excel and do great. Seek the welfare, the shalom of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, in its shalom, you will find your shalom, right? So what is the command? Notice he doesn't say, all right, you people of God, you're captives, but you know what? I want you to start an underground rebellion movement, right? I want you to have the networks of spies and infiltrate and and a forment revolution. He doesn't say that. He says what? Leave live peaceably. He does he says don't destroy, you know, don't go on this rampage destroying these pagan the pagan uh, city of Babylon. He says live in peace. But that does not and, and what does that mean to live in peace? It means take part in the normal life and commerce of Babylon. Have businesses, carry on your normal life, have, build a house, you know, have neighbors, pagan neighbors, um, participate in the city life. But I want you to remember that dual citizenship doesn't mean that these two powers are equal. You always give your highest allegiance to God. So remember the story of Daniel and his friends, right? The uh, Nebuchadnezzar says, "I want you to bow down and worship me." Daniel's friend says, "No." So Nebuchadnezzar says, then I'm going to have to 
uh, kill you by throwing you in a fiery furnace. And the friends say, do what you must. For we cannot obey man, we must obey God, right? What about Daniel? The, the, there was a law. The civil law of Babylon said, no praying to God. Only pray to the, the emperor of Babylon. What does Daniel do? In front of everybody, he begins to pray to God, right? Because you can, uh, uh, the highest allegiance of a believer is to God. If the laws of the land and the law of God clashes, God wins always. Obey God, right? So that's dual citizenship. Finally, new creation. How are we doing? Okay, not so bad. All right. Uh, so this is our final destination, the final reality. Um, we see theocracy once again, right? Uh, Revelation 19. I'm getting very winded. Who, who, can, who can read really loudly or strongly? David. You looked at me. You know, that's the, that's the rule whenever I'm looking for a volunteer. You keep your eyes down. <laughs> yeah, oh, so let me set it up, right? Uh, I want you to notice the posture, again, changes. The posture that, uh, that is towards unbelievers. Remember, in dual citizenship, the posture towards unbelievers is tolerance, live peaceably, uh, uh, in fact, promote the wel- their welfare. Now, what is the posture towards unbelievers in the new creation, in the final eternal heaven? Go ahead. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one who was on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread on the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Yeah, what a, what a very <laughs> martial strong passage, right? Uh, Christ has his robe dipped in blood. Um, He strikes down the nations. The nations, the word nations there is the the word Gentiles, right? Um, Unbelievers. He will rule them with a rod of iron. Again, just like in Eden, just like in uh, the promised land in Israel, no tolerance for rivals. Any rival is a demonic agent to be crushed. No tolerance. Um, so that leads me to the, fall, the last question then, which is where does the New Testament era fall? Right. Um, so where does the New Testament era, which we are living in, right, where does the church properly belong? Is it in theocracy or is it in dual citizenship? Um, and I would propose that it is dual citizenship. Uh, you see, I'm going to read to you First Peter 2, but you see the language of First Peter 2 repeated all throughout the New Testament through the letters of Paul. Uh, let me just read to you First Peter 2. And listen for the key words. Is it dual citizenship or is it theocracy? Beloved, I urge you, he's writing to the church, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, 
hmm, have we heard these words before, right? I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor, he's talking about the Roman emperor, to the emperor as supreme, or to governors sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. So what does he say? He says we are sojourners. What does that mean? It means that whatever nation we find ourselves in, this is not our home. We're just traveling through. We're actually foreigners. If you're, uh, if, you're, uh, uh, if you're an American citizen, you're actually, in a very profound and deep sense, you're actually a foreigner in this country because you belong to another kingdom. And you're just, you're a pilgrim. And you're going through. And you're in exile. What does it mean to be in exile? It means that you've been removed from your home and now you're living somewhere else. And in fact... The word exile should immediately trigger in your mind the experience of the Jewish exiles. You know where we're living, actually, is what Peter is saying? We're in Babylon. America, or whatever nation we find ourselves in, we're living in Babylon. Um, And therefore, are we to, what is our posture towards our unbelieving neighbors? Is it to wage war? Is it to exercise coercion and the powers of government? No. Uh, we want to be good citizens. We want to be, as Peter says, be subject to every human institution. Um, That means we engage in civic activities. That means we vote, because it's a good citizen votes, participates. Um, You should go to your PTA meetings. You should volunteer at the the local library. Um, You should do everything you can for the shalom of your city. But do not forget, it's Babylon. It's not your home, right? Um... That's right. They're always a, a kind of despised right. minority. So uh, It's confusing because we live in the United States yeah. in which historically Christians, Christ followers, have been in the majority. Yeah. But don't be confused. And it's helpful now that we are moving, transitioning rapidly into a post-Christian era. We are back in the minority again, which is the New Testament model for believers, you know, always assuming that we're this despised and hated minority. But we don't return hate for hate. We love those who persecute us. We, we pray for the shalom of the city. So if true followers of God were basically running the entire country, like in Israel, yes. would that be different, or would that be still the two-state? So I'll get to that, but uh, the, to answer that question is, I think... If, if Christians find themselves in the majority, yeah. uh, which I think to some degree is an anomaly, uh, I guess it's been an anomaly in the West and Europe for 1,500 years, um, but it is an anomaly, I think, in terms of the, the biblical storyline. Um, it is improper and illegitimate to try to return to Israel because we're not in Israel. We're exiles. Even if we're in the majority, 
we're exiles. Um, and I'll talk about the posture we should therefore have towards government. Uh, it doesn't exclude us from government. It doesn't exclude us from government because was Daniel in government? He was actually the prime minister, right? So if we exclude the emperor, that being a uh, hereditary position, he was essentially the president of the country. So can Christians be presidents of their country? For sure. But they can also be thrown into the fire. <laughs> that happened within the lifetime of Daniel, right? So, um, Follow-up question? Or? Okay, we'll go on. Yeah, okay, we'll go on. I thought I, I saw a hand. Mark 12. Uh, here Jesus is posed a question by uh, Pharisees trying to trap him, trying to trick him. Um, who was it Pharisees? It might have been Sadducees. Uh, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus said, oh, so let me just stop there. So they're saying, should we pay taxes to Caesar? It seems like a relatively innocuous question. It actually was a very um, heavily freighted, tense question because taxes, you should get rid of the word taxes, you should put in the word tribute. Should we pay tribute to Rome? And you have to remember, Rome didn't believe in dual citizenship. You know what Rome believed in? Theocracy. Um, you, Rome wanted your money, Rome wanted your political submission, and Rome wanted your spiritual allegiance. Rome wanted you to recognize that the emperors were divine. If you cannot sa offer sacrifices to the emperors as divine, you are a rebel. They will kill you. This is why Christians were killed. Um, so, should we pay tribute? Should we give sovereignty? Should we uh, give submission to Rome as a theocracy was the question. Very a trappy question for Jesus. This is what Jesus says. He says, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They show him a picture of Tiberius Caesar um, and it says all kinds of religious language on this coin. It says, Tiberius, son of the divine Caesar. And on the flip side, it says Pontifus Maximus, chief priest. Right. So Rome was absolutely a theocracy. The emperor was also the high priest. So Jesus is looking at him. What does he say? He says, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's, and Jesus said to them, render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. This is a brilliant answer because basically he's saying yes and no. He's saying yes, pay them taxes, submit to Rome as a political legitimate authority, but no, do not submit to Rome as a theocracy. Don't submit to them spiritually. Dual citizenship, that's what Jesus is saying. Romans 13. Um, this is Paul's counsel. And I want you to, I want to emphasize that Rome was intensely anti-Christian. Um, the early church was under the reign of three Roman emperors, Claudius, oh no, Nero, Claudius, and then uh, Caligula. Okay? If you know anything about ancient history, these three emperors were virulently anti-Christian. Um, but notice what Paul says about them. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. He's talking about Rome. Okay? Let, me, let me put it in contemporary terms for you. Um, suppose ISIS wins and they create some sort of massive globe-spanning uh, Islamic caliphate. That's the equivalent. We're imagine you're living under ISIS rule. Imagine that you're in Raqqa in Syria. You're a Christian. This is, what, this is what Paul says. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So what is he saying? He says, first of all, 
Don't be distressed that Rome is in power because you know what? Rome is under God. And in fact, God put Rome there. Rome is subject to God. That's what he's saying. And therefore, to the, to the point that Rome is a legitimate governmental power, to resist Rome, to revolt against Rome, is to revolt and resist God. That's what Paul is saying. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. Uh, for he is the servant of God, the avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So what is he saying? What is the legitimate role of government? Even pagan governments, even governments that are uh, hostile to Christianity, their role is to enforce rule of law. Their role is to enforce righteousness um, and, and civil order. Basically, they have police power. And what Paul is saying is respect pol- the police power of the state, right? Uh, it's there. They're actually a servant of God in that sense. Um, and I think in that sense, he's saying, again, dual citizenship, that civil magistrates are ministers. Ministers, it's an interesting word that Paul uses, ministers being, meaning servant. They're servants of God in terms of rule of law, police power. But the church are ministers of the gospel, right? So you have these, the split of spiritual and uh, secular power. Therefore, one must be in sub- subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes, right? So Paul echoing Jesus, pay your taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, there's that language again, attending to this very thing, pay all to all that is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So Paul says, no theocracy. I think it's pretty clear. Because if, if, because if it were theocracy, Paul would say, here's, here's the underground political manifesto. I want you to, to, to evangelize, yes, but I also want you to politically organize, and one day we will rise up, seize power, and make Rome a Christian empire. Dun, da, da, da. He doesn't say that. What does he say? He says, submit to Rome's power, be good citizens, pay your taxes, right? Um, and and obey them, uh, so no theocracy. Um, and I have several thoughts or several questions that I want to ask then, which is, uh, what should Christians do, therefore, in politics? So here's my quick answer. I think if we are dual citizens, it means that we ought to participate in politics, in governance, but as individuals, as dual citizens but not as the church. Um, this is why uh, our church, Indelible Grace Church, is by principle apolitical. We don't endorse candidates. We don't um, prescribe policy prescriptions, uh, policy, uh, public policy, um, because I think it's, it would be an illegitimate blending theocracy. They're separate. Um, and let me, let, me, let me look at all my questions here. Um, we have to remember that we're exiles and foreigners. So I think what I see, and here I'm going to enter some controversy. I see this rhetoric. We need to take America back as a Christian country. That rhetoric, I think, is misguided and not listening to the language of the New Testament, particularly reminding us that we are uh, dual citizens. Because what does it mean to make America a Christian nation? Um, is there such a thing? Uh, 
is is Israel the model? And I would say no. Israel was always hearkening back to Eden, and it was a promise of new creation. We are not a new creation. We are not back in the garden. We're here. We're in the exile period. And as exiles, uh, we cannot grab the lovers of power and turn them and use coercive government power. Because that's what government power is. Government power is coercive. We need coercion because nobody wants to pay taxes. So if you don't pay your taxes, you should go to jail. That's the way government works, right? Um, the, there's a parable about government, which is that, which is that um, there were uh, four men assigned to carry this enormous, um, this enormous boulder. And if they carried a boulder, they would all be paid. Um, but the way the cart was structured was that you could pretend to carry the boulder. And so each person looked like they were carrying it, but no one was actually doing the hard work. Right, so the cart didn't move. So what the four people did was they appointed one person uh, to be the taskmaster. They gave him a whip and he whipped them, and then they all carried the cart. That's what government is, right? We're appointing somebody to whip us so that we all we solve the collective action problem. We all pay taxes and we all have parks and libraries and, and police and all these good things. Um, so where am I going? Oh yeah, so take America back. I, I think that rhetoric is unhelpful. Um, some of you might ask, but I'm going to leave it up to questions. What about civil disobedience? What about what uh, Martin Luther King Jr. did in the uh, civil rights movement? What about the American Revolution? Didn't the American Revolution say no taxes to King George? Right? No taxation without representation. Uh, interesting. Can you can you vote for a non-Christian? Right? So I think in this political environment, we've heard some rhetoric where people say um, you should only vote for a, a fellow Christian. Uh, I think that's not true. Because we're not in a theocracy, and we know that uh, there are Christians who are incompetent. <laughs> we also know that there are non-Christians who, by the grace of God, because of common grace, they can be very wise and good stewards. So uh, I think we're, we need to separate those things. But because of time, I'm, I'm going to end my talk and open it up for questions. Okay. <laughs> With me. So... It's like, say, the example of Daniel, where like they obviously ask him, okay, bow, you know, his friends bow down to these other gods. Yes. So in our society, it might not be as clear. Yes. But maybe some of the political or or, or, or policies is a version of please bow down to these gods. Yes. So so it, it's hard to tell because we have a supreme, more supreme citizenship, which yes. is being the Christian and and. Uh, don't worship the other things. Yes. So it's 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 kind of mask. What I'm saying it's it's hard to know. Yes. Well, are the, the are these policies making me disloyal to the, the bigger God I have loyalty yes. to? Yes. So th th so these are very winning. That's a very good question. Um, it's uh, almost inevitably not going to be as obvious as a golden statue of Washington that we have to bow down to. Right. Um, it's going to be so much more subtler than that, right? What, what does it mean? Like, uh, I think the whole uh, argument about, for example, gay marriage and whether uh, Christian vendors can dissent and not provide services, I think that's a very complicated question. I don't really have an answer for that. Um, um, like, for example, the, the Christian, was it the caterer or the florist? They, they said they were willing to pay the penalties, they were willing to go to jail to not, to not participate. Um, it's really hard to say, and this is what makes it so complicated. I think this is why there is a diversity of opinions. 
Uh, right, the one that who followed the rule, are they being disloyal to God? Right, are they in effect bowing down right, to like, Caesar, um, to, to, to the Babylon? I don't know. I think it requires a lot of thought and discussion. Um, I know that in our community group, we've talked about like uh, your uh, role as a medical doctor um, uh, performing abortions, right? Um, it's a really tough question. It's, it's, I, I have no answer. <laughs> Other than it's, I think it requires great wisdom. Do you think that's a tough question? I mean, performing abortions as a doctor? Uh, no. I, so. <laughs> it, 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 no, it's like, no, I don't perform it, but I still care for the patient. Who had it performed. Right. Like, they can come in for complication. Do or, I say, well, this is part of the whole thing, I'm going to definitely... Or, or it, it gets more complicated than that. Like, should our taxes go to Planned Parenthood or something like that, right? Um, so it's complicated. Like, for example, I think Proposition 8. Let's think back to several years back, uh, gay marriage, right? Um, should, the, should, should Christians support or be against gay marriage? Um, the Bible is clear, I believe, on the issue of homosexuality, the Bible says no to homosexuality, but what does that mean in the civil sphere? What does that mean for civil law? That's a very complicated question. Should Christians try to enact biblical morality in this public sphere? Um, there's a whole host, aside from gay marriage, of marriage laws that are already anti-biblical. Divorce laws are already uh, uh, unbiblical. Should we move towards it? And I would say it's complicated. I respect the person who says um, biblical morality is good morality for everyone, right? So we should seek the welfare. The shalom of the city is to seek flourishing, and homosexual marriage does not in, in, in encourage flourishing. But there's another perspective that I can understand and sympathize with that says um, we should not use the levers of power coercion to impose Christian morality because we have to remember we're exiles, we're foreigners, right? And in fact, there's a lot of evidence. There's a really fantastic book that just came out by um, Robert Putnam called um, Amazing Grace. It's about Christian politics. They said that the reason why millennials, uh, Christian faith and Christian uh, uh, um, participation among uh, church attendance among millennials has plummeted. He says the chief reason for that, if you look at all the sociological data, is politics. It was basically the George W. Bush presidency, right? Where he was an evangelical Christian and he seemed to be coercive, and uh, so it turned off the millennials. So I don't know. Maybe for strategic reasons, reasons Christians need to remember that we're minorities and we're guests in America. Um, and as a guest, you don't impose. You're just glad that you're being tolerated. <laughs> um, so I don't know. Yes, David. Oh, sorry. All my thoughts are rambly, so. Okay, so I understand that uh, your, your explanation about dual citizenship. Yes. But how do you reconcile um, understanding that we have an ultimate allegiance to Christ? Yes. And if we, as a church, are apolitical. Yes. When the church members, uh, you know, if obviously we have varying political views, but if the majority leans towards, like, an act of something that is political, mm. how can you, how do you reconcile saying that, well, if there's a majority of us in the congregation who, you know, adhere to these kind of policies or yeah. whatever, how can you, how do you reconcile that 
IBC was being, yeah. being one, one way or the other. So I've been asked numerous times, how come we're not participating <coughs> in Black Lives Matters? Um, and uh, I think um, insofar as it's a political movement, my answer is always, uh, we're apolitical. Insofar as it's a question about racism, um, the Bible absolutely speaks on racism, right? Um, the Bible condemns it with, uh, with very strong language. And in fact, the vision of the, uh, the church and the people of God is it's multi-ethnic. It's this beautiful blending and, and honoring of, of all our differences. Um, I think one of the reasons why I, I don't want IGC to be political is because I think to some degree it diminishes the gospel um, because heated current events we sometimes don't have perspective, right? So it's hard for us to really have deep wisdom about the matter. Um, and, and it's hard to know, like, blow by blow, event by event, what, who, who is in the right and who is in the wrong, you know? Um, so I guess partially out of caution, I want our church to be apolitical, but partially out of principle, biblical principle, I want our church to be apolitical. But that doesn't mean... I want Christians to be apolitical. I hope that as a Christian, you're very political. I think what the gospel means is that some of you will be really intense activist Democrats, and some of you will be really intense activist Republicans, and you will say, wait, how can that possibly be? I think it just simply means is that you really care about our nation. You really care about our civic institutions. You want flourishing, and politics is the realm in which you really want to contribute with that. But it's possible you have two believers going in opposite directions politically, but we all unite in Christ in the church. I also want to say that I, I, I'm really, really, um, uh, I feel a lot of reservations about all the perception in America that the Republican Party and evangelical Christians are sort of together. Um, I think that diminishes the church because it basically means, well, I'm not Republican, therefore I must not be a Christian. Um, I think you can be a Democrat and you can be a Christian for sure. You could be a socialist and a Christian. Uh, you could be a, a libertarian and a Christian. So the socialism, libertarianism, complete opposite views about the role of government and so forth. Um, I don't know if that makes sense. Uh, or if that's satisfying. No. <laughs> <laughs> Christy? Oh, I was going to ask, because um, you kind of touched on the whole civil disobedience, but I don't know if you answered that question. Um, That is a really good question, and the people always say Nazism, slavery, civil rights movement is the Achilles heel of the dual citizenship. They always point to those examples. So my response to that is, we're out of time. Let's pray. We'll talk about it. <laughs> Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Help us to listen to your word. And sometimes we come to different conclusions, but that's okay. Um, give us wisdom. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.